And we're back with another segment of the Coop Street Podcast being recorded here at the Los Angeles airport something or other. Uh, I'm Gary Wolf. Jonathan is in Australia. He couldn't make it. But one of our, my, my guest today is somebody I've wanted to have on the podcast for years because you were one of my academic heroes. You're not much older than I am, but nevertheless, you are always. Uh, Lifetime Achievement Award this year is going to Jack Zipes, who probably has done more for um, the cultural understanding of fairy tales than anyone I know. And you've done uh, what is, I guess, now considered the standard translation of the Brothers Grimm, uh, a book which I taught for many years uh, uh, was your anthology about Red Riding Hood tales. Yes. Which yeah. was the first time I think I'd read, that was several years, decades ago 19, now. 1983. 1983. <laughs> and that was the first time I realized that these stories, you could read the same story in 20 different versions, and everyone is original. Yes. And uh, I'm, I'm curious as to what got you started. Well, let's start with Little Red Riding Hood. Where did that book come from? Uh, well, uh, that comes from a uh, actually my critique of Bruno Bertheim. Bruno Bertheim. Uses that's, of enchantment. That's that right. Was, yeah. That's right. Uh, I I had published a book in the I think it was 1978 called uh, Breaking the Magic Spell mm-hmm. and Radical Theories of Folk and Fairy Tales. And in that book, uh, there was already a chapter on Bertheim in which I critiqued his uh, um, imposition of his uh, of a pseudo Freudian theory onto fairy tales and um, Mm -hmm. uh, in order to prove this to go even beyond the theoretical chapter I wrote wrote in that book I decided to become a storyteller in schools with children to see what impact in other words empirically Mm -hmm. to do studies of of how tales impacted the lives or influenced the lives of children. And uh, I decided to focus on one particular fairy tale in this program I was developing. I had never, I had been an actor. I had had mm-hmm. my own uh, children's theater at that time in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, that, that had almost sort of uh, caused my, not my bankruptcy, but my uh, moral <laughs> bankruptcy to a certain extent because the actors were always smoking dope during rehearsals. <laughs> and and th- th- this was a, a very talented group, but that's the way they, the way they are. So I decided to separate myself from them, go in and do this experiment. And um, uh, it, it wasn't just Little Red Riding Hood, but many other right. tales. And... Uh, I, and their reactions, and, uh, and of course I didn't take uh, notes, uh, but my through observation, it was quite apparent in our discussions that they, there would be 20 different understandings of Little Red Riding Hood. And I said, well, you know, if they have all the, the uh, different interpretations, then I might as well look and see what this... Mm-hmm. I, I was not trained as a folklorist, uh, but I began studying folklore and I began looking at the tale types and so on. And I began doing my own private collection because I was often uh-huh. uh, in Europe. I lived in Europe quite a bit. Uh, and uh, wherever I went and through interlibrary loan, I collected something like three, four hundred versions of Little Red Riding Hood. 
and I published the book called The Trials and Tribulations mm. of Little Red Riding Hood. The same time I published uh, the uh, <clears throat> uh, my second theoretical book on the uh, fairy tales and the art of subversion. Right. So that and. Uh, 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 Later on, my theories or my critique of Bettelheim was validated when various biographies came out showing that he plagiarized Alan Dundee's, the great uh-huh. folklorist, uh, did a, a research and found out that he stole uh, from a book in 1946 that had come out word by word. Uh, really? Uh, yes, yeah. And, uh, so there, it, there was a like a reward somewhat of a reward mm. that that not only was he really uh criminal in in, in working with just not with autistic, in, yeah, autistic children he had no degrees in in psychology or psychi- psychiatry when he came here he was a big bluffer you know and he managed to become uh, a, a, a a supposed expert on fairy tales mm-hmm. and a supposed expert in other ways, he, and he was a sad man. He committed suicide at the end of his he life. He was not popular. He, he was teaching at the University of Chicago. Right. He was in graduate school yes, there. Yeah. And I know that the uh, his graduate students, his, his name was Bruno Bettelheim. His graduate yeah. students called him Brutal Beetlebrain. <laughs> <laughs> because they had utter contempt for, for him. He was, he was apparently a horrible, uh, mean, nasty teacher. Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't just him. There were a lot of, it seemed to me that before you came along, People felt they could just theorize fairy tales yes. from the ground right. up. Oh, there was yes. no empirical evidence. Of, of oh, yeah. Oh, Jung, the Jungians. The Jungians. Even, even yeah. today, even today, they uh, they are concocting less and less because uh, not only also Jung has been exposed as being a, a proto-fascist during the 1930s, and that his dreams and uh, so on were sort of uh, constructed also by himself very carefully and that they had nothing real to do with any scientific work mm. with people and uh, so uh, Jung is another one of the villains that I've been uh, sort of attacking and uh, but no longer I don't have to because the, no, you, the, won, the, you won that argument <laughs> no well there have been so many superb uh, uh, theorists in, in, in the field of fairy tales, uh, folk and fairy tales that, uh, you know, done, I mean, people who preceded me and people who, mm-hmm. came, who, who have come after me. And, and so I'm very pleased by this. Yeah, well, one of the things you've done uh, consistently is, is to trace this uh, interface between the folklore and legends and fairy tales and the literary fairy tales. Yes. The, the Red Riding Hood book has a James Thurber story in it. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, so, so you're not just dealing with how these stories are passed along yeah. in folklore, but you're dealing with what writers make of them as well. Yes, definitely. Uh, and I wonder if that goes back to your... Because your background is actually in German literature. Right. Uh, well, actually, my, my background, my, my PhD was in American literature and oh. comparative. Uh, I, I had... Uh, when I was studying for my PhD in American literature, I uh, had a, an, well, at that time, unfortunate love affair that broke. we broke up and I wanted to leave the country. Uh, also, I had studied too hard for two years in a row to try 
set a record in getting my PhD at Columbia, <laughs> and it, I burned out. So I, I went off to Germany for two years, and with the permission of my doctor father, and uh, I came back fluent. I lived in Munich, and uh, I came back, and I was fluent in German, and had read a great deal of German literature. And I wrote a dissertation that was comparative. It was on the uh-huh. the uh, folk, the the hero, romantic hero in German and American literature. Mm-hmm. And my focus was really I was an expert in 18th century American literature that nobody, oh, okay. no, nobody studies. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, and then what happened was I w- was invited back to Germany in uh, 1967. No, I'm sorry, uh, 1965. And I went there for, and taught as a an assistant professor at the University of Munich, and then uh-huh. and then when I, I as a New Yorker, I only wanted to teach in New York and live in New of York, course. and so I was willing to take any job I could get. Uh, from uh, I applied during uh, uh-huh. I was in, at the MLA, and I was interviewed by Queens College that they offered me a job in American literature. Then all of a sudden, NYU said, hey, we want you in Germany. And well, then, then I became a Germanist. Well, where that. did the fascination with fairy tales come from then? Uh, your... Well, uh, it, it actually came from my dissertation uh-huh. because I, I, I did uh, comparative studies chapter by chapter like uh, Nath uh, Hawthorne and Ludwig Tieck, mm. uh, E.T.A. Hoffmann and Poe. Uh, so, oh, okay. uh, so sense. I had already, yeah. uh, my mother always read to me uh, fairy tales and, uh, but I, I never thought I'd studied, uh, my major at, in, at Dartmouth was in political science and that, that's where my political sort of approach, uh, stems from my, my work in political science. And then I switched, uh, it, it's a long, Story uh, with fights with my father, who thought that it was a bum and and would never earn any money by becoming a professor, and uh, so there was a lot of rebellion in my spirit at that time. I'm curious as to what you make of the World Fantasy Convention, where you are an overdue life achievement award winner, because so many people here are working in areas of fantasy that that I think descended from uh, probably I, my own theory is. That a lot of it had to do with the German romantic. Oh, sure. Wallace yes. and Hoffman, because we yeah. know George MacDonald read them. Yes. We know that Tolkien read George MacDonald. Yes. So that you can kind of... Uh, but the, the, there is such a wealth of fairy tale literature out there now. Yes. That, uh, why, why is this explosion going on? Well, I, I think to a certain extent, uh, and, and Tolkien talks about it. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned his, his essay in... in didn't you mention uh, his on, essay on fairy on tales? Fairy stories, I yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, right, and uh, he talks about uh, fantasy as being a type of escape, but but in the sense that uh, if you're a prisoner, uh, the only thing you can think of is escape, mm-hmm. and so we are to a certain extent prisoners of our cultures, our, our civilizing processes, which are very repressive. And, f- and fantasy uh, is really uh, uh, it, it really is a uh, process. It's not it's not a noun. Fantasy mm-hmm. is a process of uh, using one's imagination to think of other possibilities 
that might improve your situation in, existentially in the world and, mm-hmm. and, and improving the world itself. And uh, to that extent, I think that uh, uh, fantasy is certain, uh, gives us a lot of hope, a, a great deal of hope, because we uh, use our daydreaming, not our night dreaming like mm-hmm. Freud. Every one of us, uh, no matter where you come from, what your gender is or anything, we, uh, and I've been studying this, uh, we daydream 70% of the day. 70%. And, and they're mental, they're images, or their thoughts, mm. they generally wish fulfillments. Mm. And, and, and more, and we have, uh, a, a, they're enlightened because of the fact that we have control of the narrative in our daydreams. We don't when we go to sleep. When mm-hmm. we go to sleep, they're basically nightmares that disturb us. This is where Freud has it all wrong and other, other psychiatrists and psych- psychologists who think we should Look at one's dreams, nocturnal dreams uh-huh. in therapy. But I, uh, uh, well, I, I just finished a book uh, uh, on Ernst Bloch, the uh, German philosopher of, of hope. He wrote mm-hmm. the three-volume study, The Principle of Hope, and which he's at the very beginning of his this mammoth work, which, by the way, he wrote as a communist in America, fleeing the Nazis <laughs> in Germany. So there are a lot of ironies in, 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 yeah. in all of this. But uh, he has this great chapter making a distinction between nocturnal dreaming and daydreaming. And, and so that most of us, uh, when we create, it's generally we're thinking, talking to ourselves, uh, and we're having, and, and then we're projecting, well, I used I think maybe I'll do it this way, or or should I? Uh, if I had done this, sometimes our daydreaming is regretting, and go. But we go back over it, and then try in another daydream to improve ourselves or improve our situation. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very much into this right now because I'm, I'm giving a talk in, in Copenhagen on a woman. Uh, her name is. Um, uh, Mariette Lydis, L-Y-D-I-S. She's dead now. No, nobody knows nobody about her. I'm, I'm, my, my new philosophy, by the way, is I'm burying the dead before I die. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. The book I just gave you is part of I'm that. Very yeah, about yeah. This. It's uh, uh, discovering people who really should have should have been discovered in the early part of the 20th century. Who are were brilliant and they passed over for all sorts of reasons, mm-hmm. not because people are uh, sort of uh, cynical or, or whatever. Uh, and so, what I've been trying to do is to find uh, uh, books of uh, uh, or stories for both for adults and children that will give us hope. And so, uh, this is my. My first attempt, I, I set up a small publishing house in Minneapolis because it's very inexpensive nowadays to create your own publishing house and, mm-hmm. and, and to produce books. You, you may not become a, have a bestseller, you might lose money, but I don't care. <laughs> you know, I, I. But this this one you're giving me, which is yes. Chris John Barman, looks like it's it's a children's book. It's a yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He did it. He, but he was a uh, well-known painter in uh-huh. Munich. He well, died. These are his paintings in the book. He, these are his own paintings and his story, which I translated, and uh, and and uh, 
uh, Behrman uh, uh, died at uh, age 42. Uh-huh. No parents, totally forgotten, even though his paintings are in museums and other places, and uh, he was quite well known, and he just died out. And and I stumbled on him. One of the best search machines I have is actually the internet. I, <laughs> I, have, I mean, that... I, sometimes I curse the internet and the computer uh, uh, world and or people using smartphones and so on and so forth. But uh, for me, it's enabled me, instead of traveling to Europe all the, all the time, I can get to libraries or uh, various places and do the research I want. And, and just by, I would say, serendipity that I discovered him on the internet. The, the, the fact it helps to be able to read several languages finding yeah. these. You're also translating an Italian, a 1921 Italian, Italian yes. fantasy, which no one has heard about. Yes. Tell us about that. Yeah, the, well, the, there are two. Well, I've done oh. a fair amount of translating, but the uh, the most important one, I think, is Johnny Rodari. Uh, that's Johnny is G I A N N I, and then Rodari O R O D A R I. If you go, in, he his dates are 1920 to 1980, so oh. he died when he... Uh, so it's his 100th year next year uh, uh, of, his, of his birthday. Uh, I discovered him in France. I, I didn't know Italian at that time, and I put, uh, picked up a book that said The Grammar of Fantasy, or The Grammar of the Imagination. Johnny Rodari, never heard of him, but I read the book. It was like sometimes you... You encounter again it's serendipity. Uh-huh. You encounter something out of the blue, and it really is very meaningful, and you didn't expect it to be meaningful. And so, it turns out uh, that he uh, he is today considered the greatest writer for children of, of, in the 20th century, and nobody. Trent notes who, about him. Wait, who considers him this? I've never the heard Italians. The, oh, the Italians. The okay. Italians, because so, he was a communist, okay? Uh-huh. So American publishers didn't, would not of touch course, him. Of course, yeah. Okay? Uh, the, actually, the Russians touched, uh, translated him. The Germans somewhat translated him. And the British, a uh, couple, uh, they, they did a couple of his books. But his major book is a theoretical book on how to work with children and fantasy and how how to animate them to become storytellers of their own lives, really? which was perfect for my storytelling program. And so uh, I, uh, be, I became enamored of Rodari. I began mm-hmm. reading him mainly in French because I didn't read uh, Italian. And I approached uh, uh, the a, a publisher in New York and said, look, I want to translate... Rodari, it's a very important book, and I'm using it in all my storytelling, mm. et cetera, et cetera. And he said, no, you, you can't, we don't let you translate an Italian author's book in French. You've got to learn Italian. Mm. And I said, no. And then I, he said, yes. And so I dropped it for a while. And then uh, my wife and I were in Paris, and uh, she, uh, she loved Italy, and mm. I... I had a certain fear of, of 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 Italy, growing up in a very rough neighborhood where there were a lot of uh, Italian tough oh, Italian yeah, guys. They used to beat me up all the time. So I uh, I didn't want to go to Italy, and and my wife went with a friend and came back and said you've got to go, Jack. And I said no, 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 no. And then I got a letter inviting me to go to Venice. I said okay, 
I'll go, uh, and I st- started studying Italian in French. My French was fluent. Mm-hmm. And I took classes there to prepare myself. to. Uh, and I went to Venice, and then right after that to Florence, and I walked down the street, and there was this big banner. This was, I think, 1980. That's right. Uh, yeah, no, 1990. 1990, big banner, Rodari over a museum. And I said, God, saying, <laughs> sending a message of some kind. So I walked in, and they were celebrating uh, so those 19, his 70th birthday. And uh, and there were all these uh, books and photos. And I said, oh, my God. And I started, tried to talk. I was Italian to them, and I felt frust- frustrated. And so I decided that on my next sabbatical, I was going to spend a year in Italy and learn Italian. And I fell in love with Rome, and I've lived in Rome for five years straight and uh, for six months out of the year and became fluent, and, and I've translated also a very important folklorist by the name of Giuseppe Pitre. To mm-hmm. make a long story short, next, uh, this coming, uh, I, I did translate the grammar fantasy, mm-hmm. uh, and it is coming out in a second edition with a really great publisher in Brooklyn called uh, uh, The Enchanted Lion, w- mm-hmm. one of the best publishers for children's literature. And uh, we're doing, uh, now I'm doing another book of tales and poems uh, of, that I've translated by Rodor. And I've met the Rodor. He, his widow, I think, may, I haven't seen the widow in a long time, but he has a daughter. He had a daughter and a sort of friendly with mm-hmm. the family, too. So you're, you're, you're implying, or at least implying to me, that there is this whole substrata of children's literature and fantasy which is almost invisible to us in the English-speaking world. Yes, and not only that, but, you know, because of this crazy uh, 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 motto I have now, unbearing the... I've discovered, and I go to London quite a bit, mm-hmm. uh, and there are children's bookstores that are fascinating. I've discovered... Uh, writers from the period of 1920s, 30s, and 40s that have not been uh, really examined. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there, I would say, uh, one of the things uh, I would say is that we have too too much banal, benign, pedantic stories for children. We should really go back and see these amazing writers mm-hmm. who exist and have not been given credit. And uh, so that's what I'm trying to do. Also. That sounds wonderful. Yeah. So the, the other book I wanted to ask you about, yeah. and I will let you go, is, is this, what is the same from Italian? Um, oh, it's an Italian fantasy novel from 1921, which I think it says... Oh, no, 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 the French, Johnny Breadless. Maybe that's it, yeah. Uh, Jean Saint-Pain. Yes. That's the, the, the uh, I'm, I've done, I've finished, the, that book is ready to go. Okay. Uh, and uh, when I probably will be at the, I'll probably receive copies in, in the middle of November, and that book will be published by Wayne State University Press, and that's an uh, uh, amazing story by uh, the the man who wrote this book. He wrote it in 1921. He his name. Is Couturier, Vaillant Couturier, and he was one of the founders of the Communist Party in uh, France. 
He went into the war, a bohemian poet, no, not really interested in politics, came out of first we were talking World War One, a oh. hero. Uh, he was one of the, I, I don't know whether you know there was at the beginning of World War One, at Christmas, had you have you heard about that? The soldiers decided to come together, yeah, give yeah. each other gifts, and so he was part of that. Mm-hmm. He came out of that a communist, a left winger, and wrote. Uh, he had been he had been known for his poetry and so on, and he, he was one of the founders of the Communist Party. But he also wanted to write a children's book uh, about a, an orphan boy whose father was killed in the war and his mother in a factory. And he got one of the best expressionist surrealist painters to do the illustrations. And uh, that book has never been translated into English either. I, again, I discovered it. And uh, so that book will be the second book of the series mm-hmm. uh, and filled with, uh, on every page, an illustration of really fascinating paintings. Sounds great. And the yeah. last one is a collection of 19th century fairy tales from Charles Godfrey Leland. Oh, yes. Another that, name I don't know. Yes. Oh, well, he was just as famous as Mark Twain. And, and a fascinating figure because if you mention him to the witches in America, and there are a lot of them. Actual okay. Wiccan. Yeah, Wiccan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he's a hero. He wrote a book at the, uh, it's a long, long story, but, uh, <laughs> he, uh, uh, he, Grew up in a fairly well-to-do Philadelphia family. His name is Charles Godfrey Leland. Uh, his father wanted him to become a lawyer like himself. Uh, he decided not to. He had uh, fought, actually, he was sent abroad from Princeton after he graduated Princeton. He fought in the uh, uh, French Revolution, not Revolution, the uh, 1848 wars. Uh-huh. Uh, I, he, uh, he learned German and French. Went back home. His father died. He inherited a lot of money. Married a beautiful woman by the name of Bella, uh, and they uh, decided to escape America at toward the end of the nineteenth century. But he, before he did that, he had published several books. One one of them was a sort of comic German a book about uh, a German American dialect that never existed, oh, yeah, yeah. and he became known as one of the great humorists. In America, uh, but he then met gypsies. He always wanted to be something else. So he mixed with American Indians. He mixed with the gypsies. He mixed with the witches and, and lived in Florence for 20 years. And there he collected, uh, uh, tons of folk tales and fairy tales. So I've collected, uh, since nobody knows about him anymore, they know him mainly for his uh, witch. Uh, theories and 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 the types of curses that he collected and published. Oh, curses! Oh, yeah, every every guy. <laughs> and uh, and so this book will come out as a collection of of tales uh, about Virgil, Florence, uh, uh, witches, uh-huh. uh, American Indian tales, and gypsy tales. Sounds fantastic. Yeah. Anything else coming out that we should know about? <laughs> keeping busy in your retirement. Yeah. You retired from Minnesota for, what, 20 years now or something? Yeah. Well, well you, you know, I have nothing to do with my time. That That is, I have a lot to do. So I have a lot of time on my hands. And, and, uh, so you learn Italian so you can translate one book. Good. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, no, I, I, you know, I feel that. And I think all of us here, uh, I'm probably the oldest among us right now, 
But I want to, before I die, I really want to do the things I want to do, and I want to plunge ahead as long as I can. So Doing an amazing the, job. Uh, Thanks for being with us today. Right. Thank you. Thank Once you. again, from Los Angeles <laughs> World Fantasy Convention, this is the Coon Street Podcast. <laughs>